Well, it was over half a decade ago now where the English poet W. Auden labeled our modern age the age of anxiety. This is a pretty apt description, I believe, of the days that we find ourselves in, in our surrounding culture and often in our churches. Our society, as you know, is moving through turbulent days. Our political leaders here in Northern Ireland can't seem to find a way forward to form an executive at a time when we need leadership more than ever. Our economy seems to be in a kind of free-falling tailspin. Trigger-happy dictators with nuclear buttons are growing more and more unpredictable. With respect to this fear-inducing climate, there are specific challenges for us as Christians. What do I mean? Well, there are so many things going on in the world today that seem to speak loudly against the idea of a good God who reigns in the world. The tension between what we believe and what we see around us can stretch our faith sometimes to the point where we feel it could break. We find fears, doubts arising in our hearts. Well, I want to take you back to around 500 BC. For we can imagine that this must have been pretty close to how the first readers of the book of Daniel must have felt in their day. In its final form, the book that we have today, the book of Daniel, was first circulated around Jewish congregations who had returned from a time of exile in Babylon to Jerusalem around 500 BC. Where once those Israelites, those Jewish people, had been an autonomous nation in their own land, with powerful kings like David and Solomon reigning over their empire, now these early Jewish communities in the 6th and 5th centuries BC, they were nothing more than a group of fragmented communities scraping out a living in a dilapidated city, Jerusalem, living in subservience to powerful nations vying for dominance all around them. The first readers of the book of Daniel would have felt so weak, vulnerable, and insignificant, and they must have wondered at times if their faith in a sovereign God who reigned over all and had good plans for them, they must have wondered, is our faith a bit misplaced? Have we got this wrong somehow? Well, into that fear and uncertainty, imagine them sitting and having read in their gatherings the book of Daniel. For into that fear and uncertainty comes this second chapter of the book of Daniel that is designed to give a big vision of our sovereign God to reassure God's people that their faith is not misplaced in him and to rekindle their faith 
through this chapter that centers on the dream of a Babylonian king. God speaks a word of hope to his people in their age of anxiety. And he has recorded this and preserved it for us so that we can experience and hear this word of hope in our age of anxiety. And that word that God speaks to us through this chapter is this. Though you may feel weak and vulnerable, little church, and intimidated by this world, fear not. For you belong to me and my great kingdom that will never fail and never come to an end. Fear not. Your faith and hope in my kingdom is never misplaced. This chapter is one of those chapters in the Bible given to put steel rods in our backs. It gives us a vision of the sovereign reign of God over history so that we can have confidence today as Christians to live faithful, steady, hope-filled lives in a world that looks completely chaotic. The narrative of Daniel chapter 2 consists of five main scenes. And we're going to work through each scene one by one and see how the whole picture gives us a vision of our sovereign God. In fact, it contrasts the futility and fragile nature of this world over against the firmness of God's kingdom that will know no end. So let's get straight in to the text, and I'll try to keep us moving through it, for it's a fairly big narrative, but it is so gripping. Scene 1. Verses 1 to 13, we see here a picture of the futility of pagan religion. This first scene depicts Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, experiencing his own age of anxiety. We're told in verse 1, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, or you could translate that, his spirit was anxious and his sleep left him. You see, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar was no fool. Babylonians loved dreams. They had manuals and manuals and books and books on how to interpret dreams. He knew that this dream that he had of a great statue being knocked over by a stone might have spelled disaster for him and his kingdom. Like any earthly dictator, the place at the top, though powerful, is also precarious. And he woke up anxious and stressed out by this dream that he had. So in verses 2 to 3, he calls for his best team of dream interpreters, and he explains to them that he's troubled to know the dream. That is its significance. The interpreters say to him in verse 4, well, tell us the dream, great king, and we'll show you the interpretation. But the king responds in verses 5 to 9 saying, no, I'm not going to do it that way this time. I want you to tell me the content of the dream, and then I'll know that you're able to show me the interpretation. He also adds, oh, and by the way, if you can do this, I will reward you with riches and honor. If you can't, 
I'm going to send you to the executioner. You'll be torn limb from limb. He was clearly stressed out by this dream. Well, look at what the interpreters say to him in verse 10. They're known as the Chaldeans. They answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, in each scene of this narrative, you get this kind of one verse or a few verses that are really theologically loaded, like a ring with a diamond in the middle. Every scene has this gem in the middle, and verse 11 is really the theologically loaded statement of this first scene. The thing the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, why? You have to ask yourself, why does the writer want us to hear that statement? He wants us to hear this as an admission of the failure of this pagan system of religion. Here we have the most powerful king of the day. He's crippled with anxiety over his future. He looks for help in his own man-made system of religion, and it is totally impotent to help him. The writer is saying, you think of those first communities listening to this, in Jerusalem, feeling so weak and vulnerable. Think of us in the church today, in our own equivalent of Babylon, the city of Belfast. Think of what this is saying to us. Don't be overawed by what you see in Babylon and by Babylon's gods. Yes, your world out there might look big and powerful and impressive, like they've got it all together, but let me tell you this, it's a superficial structure without light and without power. Natives in Babylon and people in this world like to make it look like they have their lives all together and are strong. But you scratch beneath the surface just a little, and what will you find in people in the world today? You'll find insecurity, confusion, moral darkness and uncertainty, and frustration. Look at how angry Nebuchadnezzar is in this narrative. And our culture is, an ex is experiencing an, a, a, an epidemic of anger today. Why are people frustrated? Because of the insecurity, the confusion, the uncertainty that reigns and the instability that's all around us. Scene one gives us a picture of the futility and failure of pagan religion in Babylon and in the world. But now, moving pretty quickly on past, we come to scene two, which gives us this very powerful contrast to the futility and failure of pagan religion. In scene two, verses 14 to 30, you get this contrast, the God who reveals mysteries. In verse 13, we learn that the king's command that the wise men of Babylon be destroyed brought Daniel and his three friends who we met last week, it brought them into a place of serious danger. Remember, they were exiles. The Babylonian king had invaded Jerusalem, taken loads of prisoners. Daniel and his three friends, they were really wise. They showed themselves to be experienced, and they were brought into this group of wise men. And so now all the wise men are about to be killed. 
And so Daniel is suddenly in great danger. But now contrasting the anger and the panic of King Nebuchadnezzar in the first scene, Daniel in verse 14 is a picture of composure. It's really brilliant when you see it in the narrative. When the king's guards come in to execute him, Daniel replies, we're told, with prudence and discretion. He's composed. He asks, why is the king's decree so urgent? He knows it's flowing out of frustration and panic. And in verse 16, he asks the king to set a time where he can show the king his dream and its interpretation. And I just love once again, like last week, the confidence that Daniel has in a God who can actually do something about the blindness in the world. In verse 17 and 18, Daniel goes back home to his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his fellow exiles, and he says, guys, we've got to seek the Lord for mercy, because I've sort of committed to something, and I'm hoping it's going to work out okay. He says, we've got to pray that God's going to make known to us the king's dream and the mystery of what it means. Then, with great economy, the author tells us in verse 19 that the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. God reveals his plan, the dream, and its interpretation to Daniel. And after the narrative in this scene going at breakneck speed, suddenly in verses 20 to 23, the whole thing screeches to a very slow marching pace because the writer clearly wants us to slow down and focus on Daniel's prayer, rejoicing in the greatness of God. Here's your theological gem of this scene. Over against the weakness of the Babylonian gods, Daniel rejoices in the true and living God. In verse 20, he says, God is the God of wisdom and power. In verse 21, he rejoices in God's sovereign control of history, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. In verse 22, he rejoices that his God is a God who reveals deep and hidden things, who knows what is in the darkness and who is full of light. How reassuring is that? We see in front of us, we don't know what's going to happen in the world uh, stage and in history. It's all darkness to us, but there's a God who knows what's in the darkness. The emphasis in this scene is actually that God is a God who makes known mysteries. He's a God who reveals his will and his ways to his people. Over 30 times in this chapter, Daniel 2, do we read of revealing words that are related to God. You're supposed to draw this contrast between verse 11, where the Babylonian magician said, The thing the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods. But we know that the gods don't dwell with flesh. They're not interested. Over against that picture of blindness and darkness and a closed system, you're supposed to see the living God who breaks into this age. He does show interest in the world, and he speaks and reveals and makes himself known. This theological point comes to a crescendo when Daniel goes into the king in verse 26. And the king asks him, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen and its interpretation? And Daniel answered the king, what's his first word? He says, no, 
poor old Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego must have been having a panic attack at that point. What are you saying no for? We're about to get killed. But he continues, no wise man, no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery the king's asked. But look at this line, verse 28, but there is a God in heaven. He reveals mysteries. He's made known to the king what will be in latter days. Isn't it brilliant? Daniel takes all the attention off himself and he says, I can't do it, but there is a God in heaven. That is a message that our world desperately needs to hear. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, makes himself known, makes known to the world what is to come and how we must be ready for what is to come. Daniel says, my God is not some far-off, disinterested God who leaves us in darkness. He's a God who sheds light on those dwelling in darkness. This is such good news for us, and we must never forget it. Think of how sad the stories of your unbelieving colleagues are, and the stories of your unbelieving friends and family members. Think of how sad their narrative is. They're in their closed system of darkness, They wake up and go into each day with no belief in the God of heaven, nothing ultimate to live for, no clear purpose, no idea of where history is going, and no certainty of what lies ahead. That is a sad story. Yet, we know that there is a God in heaven who has made himself known. He speaks and makes himself known in the book of creation. I love the opening verse of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. Don't you just love looking at a beautiful sunset or the stars or pictures that the Hubble telescope sends us through of the glories of the universe? just telling us of God's glory and God's might. The book of Romans chapter 1 tells us that God is speaking to this world through what he has made, clearly revealing that behind it all, there is a God who is powerful. He also speaks through the book of Scripture, our Bibles. He has made himself known and interpreted who he is, the God behind creation. In the book of Scripture, God tells us that He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. There is one true God, that He exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that He is calling and inviting us into a relationship with Him, the relationship that all humanity was created to find satisfaction in. And this Scripture tells us that the fullest revelation of this God comes in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the full and final revelation of the mystery of God. And we're going to see this as we keep moving through the text. But let me ask you this question. Do you know this God who is in heaven, who has made you, who knows everything about you? Have you opened your life up to him and turned your life to him and said, I want to know you, O living God? Well, let's keep moving now into scene three. We see now another picture of human weakness and futility. We see the king's dream in verses 31 to 35, a picture of the fragile nature of human power. 
In verses 31 to 35, Daniel explains the content of the king's dream like he asked. And then in verses 36 uh, down to 43, uh, well, to 44 and following, he explains the interpretation. The dream itself is quite simple. In verse 31, Daniel explains that the king saw a great image, big statue. It looked powerful and glorious, bright, but it was also frightening. The head, in verse 32, we read, was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, middle and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and then feet partly of iron and partly of clay. Then in verses 34 and 35, we read that in the dream, there came this stone, not cut out by any human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke the whole thing so it disintegrated into the pieces, into pieces, so that actually the wind blew it away and not a trace of it remained. Then we read that the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. That's the dream. Now in verses 36 and following, Daniel gives the interpretation. In 37 and 38, he tells Nebuchadnezzar that the head of gold, gold represents him. It represents Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. You can imagine Nebuchadnezzar, who we know in this book, has a bit of a pride problem. He must have loved that. Oh, I am the head of gold. That's great. But then in verse 39, we read that another is going to arise after him. It will be a kingdom inferior to him, but will arise after him. That's the silver chest and the silver arms in the image. Then that kingdom, the second one, will, it will come and it will go for a third kingdom of bronze will arise. That's the kind of bronze middle part of the statue. Then in verse 40, we read of a fourth kingdom that will rise, and it's going to be strong as iron. That's the iron legs of the image. But notice the feet that the whole statue stands on is partly iron and partly clay, materials that simply don't hold together. That's that's a picture that the whole thing looks very strong and impressive, but it's built on very flimsy foundations. Now, what does all that mean? (laughs) You're probably hearing that and going, whoa, slow down a bit. Well, standing from our vantage point in history, we can actually look back, and it's really helpful because we can see how this vision was fulfilled historically. Have you got the slide there, guys, that I asked to be put up at this point? Thank you very much. Hopefully, that'll just help you to follow this along. Historically, the Babylonian kingdom that Nebuchadnezzar was the king of reigned from around 625 to 539 BC. It collapsed, and we'll actually track with this in the book of Daniel because the book of Daniel records this collapse. It was followed by a kingdom called the Medo-Persian Empire. 539 to 331, but then it collapsed. It was followed by a Greek kingdom. Remember Alexander the Great and the Greeks and all that wonderful empire and civilization? His kingdom reigned from 331 to 63. Looked like it would never end until the rise of the Romans. From around 63 BC to 476 AD comes the fourth kingdom, the Roman kingdom. Again, looked like it could never fall. The glory of Rome would never end. And yet, look at Italy today. Just a few years ago, financially struggling, clearly not a world empire. Wonderful country for any Italians out there. Love you. But what do you see? Kingdoms are going to come. Kingdoms are going to go. The first, the second, the third, the fourth. They're going to rise 
they're going to fall. Do you remember what we read in chapter 2, verse 21? He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Thanks, you can take that image down now, guys. What we need to do, though, is step back and say, right, what's the point of all that, though? What's the point of that vision? What is God revealing? And I believe he's revealing at least three things through this vision for that, those first readers of the book of Daniel and for us. First thing he's revealing in this dream is this. God gives earthly leaders their authority and their position. They should not forget that. At the beginning of the vision, Daniel emphasizes that though Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, everything he and subsequent leaders have, it all comes from God. Verse 37, God has given to you the kingdom and the power and the might and the glory. Verse 38, he's given into your hands the authority to rule. God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know you're only king because God has given you that place in history. Second lesson we're to learn, God is sovereign over history, over the rise and fall of kings. Verse 39, after you, Nebuchadnezzar, another king will come, and then another king and kingdom, and then another. You see, God knows the end from the beginning. He's in control of world history. Third lesson we're to learn, this is the main one, earthly kingdoms may often look strong and impressive, even to the point of people thinking they're invincible. But they are inherently insecure and unstable. The statue standing as a unified whole represents all earthly kingdoms down through the years. And look at what this seemingly indestructible image stands on. Feet of clay. The world and her glories may seem powerful, stable, and at times frightening. But the whole thing is inherently unstable. The point of this dream is to expose the fragile and temporary nature of human power. Now remember how we started. This vision given to a fragile, fragmented community feeling so vulnerable in the face of the power of the world. God speaks through a pagan king to show that he reigns and that we don't have to fear. But that's not where this vision ends or interpretation ends. In this fourth scene, this vision of the fragile nature of human power is contrasted now with the firmness of God's kingdom. This is simply class. Verse 34, we read of a stone not cut from any human hand that struck the image and smashed it into smithereens. In verse 44, we're told what that stone represents. And in the days of those kings, that is, in the days of the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Though it's brief, Four things are said about this stone that becomes a mountain kingdom. 
this kingdom that God will begin to establish in the days of the Roman Empire. Number one, it will be of divine origins. Verse 44, the God of heaven will set up his kingdom. It's built on a stone not cut by any human hand. Divine origins. Number two, this kingdom will be indestructible. Verse 44, it shall never be destroyed. There's no other kingdom that's going to come after it and say, well, I'm now going to break the stone that broke the statue. Number three, it shall come initially, this kingdom, and grow gradually. Verse 35, the stone that strikes the image becomes over time a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And the fourth thing we're told is that this kingdom shall be final. It will finally overwhelm all earthly kingdoms that stand in rebellion against God, and this kingdom of God's will endure forever. There will be no other kingdom to come after this one, and after this one has come fully in its power and glory. And once again, at this vantage point, we can see how this was fulfilled and the hope that it gives to us. You see, this stone, not cut from any human hand, this rock that becomes the foundation stone of the kingdom of God is, of course, fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of Scripture, every narrative is like another train line, and all the train lines meet in the person of Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, he proclaimed that the kingdom of God had come in his coming into the world. He's the stone not cut from any human hand who was coming to shake the foundations of humanity and to lay the foundation of God's kingdom. In Luke 20, Jesus told a parable called the parable of the tenants in the vineyard. He spoke of how he would be rejected by the people of his age and put to death. And then he quoted Psalm 118 and he said, but the stone that the builders rejected, he'll become the cornerstone, the foundation stone, the head of the corner. And then he said, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You see, the only way humanity can stand, the only way humanity can know security in the kingdom of God is by a right response to Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus, he is the stone that you reject, that becomes the stumbling stone. It's the stone you've tripped over, and that stone will crush you in the end, in judgment. And yet, here is a vision given in this chapter of a kingdom that God is establishing and inviting people from all nations to come into, to come to Christ and to find shelter and refuge, not in this unstable world, but in the stability of the kingdom of God, a kingdom that will never end. This whole vision of the stone becoming a mountain in the head of the Babylonian king in the middle of the night, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Jesus came into the world. He would come and set up his kingdom, not initially through a display of power and authority, but through a display of humility and weakness. He would come to save us out of the darkness of our sins and our closed system of rebellion against him. Think of that, the stone that strikes the statue. It's the death of Christ. Looks like so, so weak, so vulnerable, so chaotic and out of control. Looks like a dead end. 
And yet the stone of Christ that is rejected rises again on the third day and becomes the foundation stone for humanity. Hope, life for the nations. It's our hope. It's the hope of Belfast. And in the midst of the rising and the falling of earthly kingdoms that look so powerful, we're told here that they are in fact so unstable But in the midst of all that instability, my little church, remember, I am building my kingdom across the nations, subtly and steady, subtly and steadily. The stone is becoming a mountain, and no power of hell, no scheme of man, no earthly dictator, not one force in the universe can stop King Jesus from building his kingdom across the nations. This is our hope today. It is sure, it is certain, it is unstoppable. You have not backed the wrong horse. Your faith is not misplaced in any way. This dream tells us, expect the world to look powerful. Expect the church to feel weak, but the kingdom is coming. And in that day when the king comes, he will shatter all earthly rebellion against him. It will blow away, there won't be even a trace of it, and all that will be left is the kingdom and the saints of Christ. That is a stable and sure hope in an unsteady world. And that is the hope that the thousands of students descending upon the city tonight need to hear. I drive home on a Sunday night, and they're lined up outside the bars, and they're all running around, and they're, they're in Babylon and in darkness. And here we have a message that has power to change that. A God who has made known the mystery of his will that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Is this all for real? I love the certainty that the last part of verse 45 gives to us. See what Daniel says there? A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain. It's interpretation sure. I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt this morning that if you do not have Christ, you will be crushed under the wrath of God. But if you have Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, Christ becomes this incredible, impenetrable rock of shade for you. And the wrath of God will never touch you. You will be safe in Christ. That is the hope of the nations. It's the hope of North Africa. It's the hope of China today. It's the hope of Indonesia. It's the hope of America, the hope of Canada, the hope of Afghanistan, the hope of Somalia and Eritrea, South Africa, Central African Republic, Pakistan, India. Stone that today is becoming a mountain. The Savior who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Don't you see that we have a better story? Here's a vision to put steel in our backs. I don't know if you look out on the world like I do today. You see the various confused moralities pressing their agenda and saying, oh, the morality, the moral vision of the church, that's so archaic. Let's be free from that. And it can feel so intimidating, can't it? When someone from a a lobbyist 
the LGBT group, say, for example, puts the pressure on us and we just feel we have nothing to say and we feel like, how can we stand up against this secularism that is in the world today? You feel so weak, you feel so vulnerable. And yet here's this vision where God says to his people looking out onto such a world, he says, fear not, little flock. Your faith is not misplaced. Expect Babylon to be intimidating. Expect threats and aggression. But no, you're called to live a composed life, steady, faithful, where you live for the kingdom that will never end. If you're here and you're not a Christian, are you ready for Christ to come and bring the fullness of his kingdom in where he will fully and finally put an end to all sin and everything sinful in this world? Have you come to Jesus, the cornerstone, and built your life on him? If not, I would urge you to do that today. For us who are Christians, let's remember the rock-solid hope that is ours. The day is coming when the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. I've said this to you before, but I'll say it again. In the end, you can know for certain that the Lamb will win. You want to make sure, we all want to make sure that we are on that winning side. Let's pray. Father, as we respond with the hope that's in our hearts this morning, as we sing in Christ alone, as we come to the Lord's table where we remember where the the rejected stone was crucified and rose again to become the cornerstone, our foundation of hope, oh, we pray that you would just keep working in our hearts now and helping us to respond rightly, to say thank you to you, the God who's making, building a kingdom that can never be shaken. Thank you for bringing us into that kingdom. If there are people here and they don't know you, Lord, I just pray even now that say, I want to come into your kingdom, Lord. We thank you so much, Lord, for this incredible vision that settles us and it says, yeah, you should expect the world and its empire to look very powerful and that it will never end, but you know better that in the midst of these kingdoms that will rise and fall, there is only one king and one kingdom that will endure forever. That is the kingdom of Christ. And we thank you, Father, so much that we have been brought into a kingdom that can never be shaken. That is our incredible hope. But it's our prayer in these days that you'd bring many more into this kingdom and revive our city and help us, like Daniel, to be faithful witnesses in the Babylon you've placed us in. For Lord, we see at the end of this conclusion, Nebuchadnezzar ended up rejoicing and saying that truly God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And we just pray that in these days, through our quiet, steady, faithful witness, we would see others coming to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of you, God our Father. Amen.
Amen. Well, in a moment, we're going to share communion together. And for anyone that's new and not used to that, I'll explain what we're doing when we come to that. But we'll start by setting our hearts, by standing to sing the first two verses of In Christ Alone, Our Hope is Found. Just there. 